Shil Ilushma, because I'm recording now. This is the Shil Ilunishmos Mefram Shmuel Ben Avraham Cohen Chaya Tova Basaliyaza Mendel on <coughs> the Book of Yechezkel. We are in the middle of verse uh, 26, I believe, of 28 in the first chapter. Um, last week, I'll read the verse to you. We dealt unusually with the second part of the verse rather than the first part of the verse. We'll deal with the um, the first part of the verse uh, today and hopefully get on to verse 27 and the aim is to finish the first chapter either next week or the beginning of the week after but uh, chapter 1 verse 26 uh, Yechezkel is describing something above the heads of the angels umimal or above the expanse above the barrier which is above the heads of the angels, Asher al-Rosham, which is above the heads, Kamare Evan Sapir, there was the appearance of a stone made out of Sapir, Demuski uh, Say, there was a, the appearance of a throne, Al Demuski Say, on the appearance of the throne, Demus Kamare Odom, Olav Milmala, there was an appearance of a man, on sitting on the throne, it doesn't actually say he was sitting on the throne, but it, uh, the implication is that there was a, something that looked like a human being sitting on the throne above. Um, now, we dealt with that second part of the verse last week. What we didn't deal with was the first part of the verse, which dealt with the appearance of the area around the throne. And the area around the throne, the possible describes it in Wimal or above the expanse of Shara Roshim, Kamara Evan Sapir. The appearance of the world, so to speak, it's either the... It is the world of Yitzira, the world of um, formation, sorry, the world of Bria, the world of uh, creation. And that had the appearance of an Evan Sapir, of a Sapir stone. So exactly what is a Sapir stone? What does it look like? What can we learn from it? So um, there are various opinions um, We'll, we'll go straight into the Kabbalistic um, interpretations because um, primarily this Evan Sapir is of Kabbalistic nature. It, remember, it doesn't actually exist. It's just an appearance. The Bosset clearly says, Kamare uh, Evan Sapir. It appeared to Yechezkel like an Evan Sapir. So what is an Evan Sapir? So the Shari Ora, which is one of the primary books of Kabbalah, um, describes it. Remember, it's in the upper realms. This is above the realm of the angels. It's in the, in the realm that is partially um, um, God's presence or God's essence is partially embedded there. It's called the throne, the kavod of God. Some part of God's essence is embedded in this area. Um, and the Shari Ora says, this Evan Sapir is the catalyst for giving Brocha and Klola from the upper realms. It's the source, it's the catalyst, it's the means by which Brocha, blessings and Klola and curses are brought or, or are sent down into the lower realms from the upper realms. Um, and it's got another name and the Evan Sapir's other name is Adonoi which is the word we use to describe God, right? Baruch Atoh Adonoi, which, uh, when we're saying a bracha. Adonoi just means the master, um, or my master. So the Evan Sapir is also called Adonoi. So when you're thinking about uh, praying, 
and you're making a bracha or you're saying the Shemona Ezra, um, that's where the bracha goes, supposedly. That's the idea here. It goes to this area that is described as the Evan Sapir. Um, it's described as a stone. Let me just mute everyone again. Um, the uh, Shari Ora says it's described as a stone. It's like a nickname, really. It's not really a stone because it's um, it's uh, a yesod, really. It's just a building block. It's one of the building blocks of the world. And that's why it's called a stone, because stones are normally used to as building blocks. So the Evan Sapir is one of the building blocks of creation. We'll see in a second it is possibly the building block of creation. We know at the beginning of the Book of Bereshis, for example, there's a machlokis of the uh, argument between Rashi and the Ramban, exactly what manner of uh, creation took place in the first verse. Bereshis Bara Elohim. What did God actually do? So the opinion from the Ramban is that God created something extremely small from which all existence came, from which all existence expanded. It's the original idea of the expanding universe. Um, God created something that had all the potential to become the universe, as we know it, the physical universe. And this could be According to some opinions here, this this piece, this thing that God created, could be the Evan Sapir. Now we'll see. That's why it's called Adonai because it's it's from the Master. It's the Master's creation, uh, and it's the Yesod. It's the building blocks for the whole of creation, um, and therefore, as a result of it being the building block for the whole of the physical creation. It's also the source of all bracha. It's also the, the point at which all bracha and all klala, all blessings and all curses come into our world. It's got other names as well. It's also called the Evan Harosha, the primary stone. That's why Zechariah, that's what Zechariah calls it in the fourth chapter of Zechariah. Chapter 4 verse 7, he calls it the Evan Harosha, the uh, primary stone. Um and because it uh, it came out from 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 it came out all the creation, all of creation from the highest to the lowest pieces of creation. Uh, so it's got various names. It's called the Evan Sapir. It's called Adonai. It's called the Yesod. It's called the Evan Harosha, the primary stone. Um, it's got other names as well. I mean, in English, we would translate it as, I think you'll, if you look in your translation, you'll see it possibly translated as sapphire, sapir. Uh, maybe that's the root of the English word sapphire from this word sapir, because it seems to fit very, very well. Uh, Yechesko mentions it here, and he mentions it in chapter 10 as well. Um, it's also connected to the word, uh, the Hebrew words sephirot, sapir and sephirot. So the sephirot are the, um, attributes, God's attributes it's in certain points of his interactions with his own creation. So you have another name. It's it's also from the language of Sfirot, and it's also from the language of um, Le Saper, and from the language of Mispar, which means number. And uh, each one of these words from the language of Sapir have, have got Kabbalistic meaning, Um in the sense that it receives or it gives off all shades of instructions from all levels of uh, the Sfirot, all levels of God's God's realm, so to speak. And it acts upon all creation. 
sometimes for good and sometimes for bad, to give life and to cause death, to make people sick and to heal people, to make people poor and to make people rich, etc., etc. This is the device or the catalyst that God uses to influence the physical uh, the physical world. Um, the Shara Ora brings the Shara Ora brings a posit to describe exactly how this Evan Sapir, which again has got many names, there'll be another name for it in a minute. Um, in Devorim, in chapter 32 of Devorim, um, we have God's interaction with the uh, creation. God says, Ru, see now, ki ani anihu, I am he, I am he, ve'ein Elohim imodi, there's no other God with me, ani omis ve'achaye, I cause death and I create life, mochatsti ve'ani erpeh, I strike and I heal, ve'ein miyodi matzil, and no one can rescue anything or anyone from my hand. And uh, the Shari Ora says this is a direct reference to the Evan Sapir. This is the tool, so to speak, that God uses to create life, to extinguish life, to create illness, to heal. Everything, everything that uh, takes place in our world comes through first through this Evan Sapir. And what the way it works, the mechanics of it, which is, again, Kabbalistic in nature, is this this uh, Evan, this stone, so to speak, uh, sucks the strength of the Sfirot. Like it, uh, it uh, takes its energy from God's essence and uh, passes it on to the next level until it comes into the physical world, um, either in forms of blessings or for brochas, for parnasa, for food, for everything. And also for clawless, for bad things that uh, happen to people in this world. They all go through this sort of mechanism through the Evans up here, which sits in this area of Bria, the, uh, the world of creation. So it's really the primary, uh, the way the Shari Ora seems to describe it, it's the primary piece of creation. It's the thing God created first, and it um, is the counter, counterbalance to creation in that it is... The physical, the spiritual representation in the spiritual world of what the physical reality is. And when God wants to interact with the physical world, one of the methods by which he does it is going through this Evans up here. Now, it, as a stone itself, it doesn't really exist. It's not really a stone. It's called a stone because, again, because it's describing something that we, we would normally uh, associate with a stone. A stone is a foundation. And this is the foundation of the physical universe. That's the way the the Kabbalists describe the stone. Um, it's also described in Hallel, in Tehillim, in the 118th chapter of Tehillim, something we say on uh, Yom Tov and Rosh Chodesh, and every time we say Tehillim, we say, in, which is something that, that uh, David HaMelech said, Eben Moasu Habonim. The stone that the builders rejected. Now, the 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 Kabbalistic. There's various understandings of this verse. Eben Moaso Habonim, the stone that the builders rejected, Hoysol Pina, became the the primary foundation stone. Became the fi primary cornerstone. Now, the way to understand this Kabbalistically is Eben 
this stone, Mosul Habonim, that the builders, the Avot, rejected, became the cornerstone of creation. Because uh, Avram, Yitzchok, and Yaakov, the Avot, their place is above even the Sapir stone, the Evan Sapir, in the upper echelons of the uh, of God's realm. Their Neshamot, their, their souls are higher up than this. So they, their lives, so to speak, were not affected in the sense that we understand our lives being affected by this Evan. They had direct communication with God in that sense. Their destiny was uh, directly tied into messages they received from God. Whereas when God later on, when the Jewish people became the Jewish people, it wasn't personal anymore. It became national. God didn't speak to Moses about particular individuals, except in very, um, very uh, unusual occasions, like with Korach and uh, with Paro. But generally speaking, uh, after the time of the Avot and from the time of the uh, Matan Torah, God's uh, communication with prophets relates not to individuals, relates to the group, the Jewish people as a whole. Uh, the time of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov, it was a more personal relationship. And uh, as a result of that, so uh, we see that the mitzvot that were adopted by the Avot, or the primary mitzvah that was adopted by the Avot, which is Brit Milah, which is circumcision, is a personal mitzvah. It's not a national mitzvah. Anyway, that's a, a, a different uh, different understanding or a different going off in a different direction. But uh, so they, they were unaffected by this Eben, Eben Marsu Habonim, this stone that was um, rejected by them. But David came along and David clung to it. David, David was deeply influenced. His life was deeply influenced. He was the first, or the, the first king of the Davidic dynasty. He was responsible for the Jewish people. And that, that, that's what the Pasuk says about him. Hoysol LaRosh Pino. Um, it, once he became, once Jewish history went into that era of the Davidic dynasty, which it was destined to do, then the Eben Ma'asu, this uh, stone that has a profound influence on the creation, takes on a new, uh, a renewed importance because it's vital for the future of the Jewish people. It is the way that God interacts, so to speak, with the Jewish people through this Eben Ma'asu Habonim. And it's Hoysa LaRosh Pina. It becomes the centerpiece, the cornerstone, the foundation of the way that God deals with the Jewish people. Um, so it's, um, that's, that's, uh, that's basically, uh, a Kabbalistic insight into what Yecheskel is seeing here. He's seeing the, the, the mechanism by which God interacts with the world, with, particularly with the Jewish people. Evan Moisar it's also, it's also alluded to, um, um, in Eov, right at the end of Eov, Eov says, Mi yora evan pinoso. God who set the cornerstone of creation. Um, which is, is implying this type of, um, that uh, this type of creative process where God create, got the actual creation of the physical universe was one tiny piece, uh, invisible to the human eye, and from that all potential. Um, it contained all the potential for the construction and the expansion of the universe. 
So that is one way of looking at it. But generally speaking, we, we look at... Um, we look at the idea of the Evan Sapir, and I'm sure it's translated in your books as a sapphire stone. Um, is that correct? Has anyone got that as a translation? That the Evan Sapir is a sapphire stone? Okay, so, um, you know, if we go back to basics and uh, we, we take away really um, the, um, the curtains of a Kabbalistic approach, which I believe the Kabbalistic approach is more accurate. But uh, we have Rabbeinu Bachai, um, his commentary on Shmos, um, and he discusses the Evan Sapir as well on a less Kabbalistic note. Um, he says that the Evan Sapir represents the connection between man and the Torah. Um, if you notice that um, the Kohen Godel, the high priest's uh, aphod uh, in his Choshen, his breastplate contained 12 stones. And the 12 stones uh, corresponded to each of the tribes. Um, one of the, one of the uh, jewels on the breastplate of the, co- of the Kohen was a sapir, a, uh, a saf- sapphire. Um, and it's blue. And it belonged to the tribe of Yizokha. And Rabbeinu Bachai says it belongs to the tribe of Yizokha because Yizokha was extremely wise. And his tribe excelled in Torah knowledge. We have the um, the idea of Yezokha and Zvulun, the partnership between the person that works and the person that learns. And uh, really, the, the person that works supports the person that learns physically, and the person that learns supports the person that works spiritually. So they share the money, and they share the rewards of the Torah. So on in that uh, combination... Yizokhar, it's called the relationship Zavulin, Yizokhar and Zavulin. Yizokhar is the teacher. Yizokhar is the person that sits and learns. And that's why, uh, says Rabbeinu Bachai, they were given the their stone on the breastplate of the Kohen God was the Sapir, because it, it represents the connection between man and the Torah. And it says, um, the posse, he quotes the posse from Divrei Hayomim, Umibnei Yizokhar. The descendants of Yezokha, Yode Bina Laitim. They are the ones that uh, experience Bina. They, they, they have the ability to put information together and um, be mitchadesh, be in, innovative in Torah. Ladas Mayasa Yisrael. To understand and experience what Israel are up to. The state of play regarding the Jewish people. And of course, uh, as we explained in the Kabbalistic understanding, this idea is um, is intrinsic to the idea that the sapphire stone is um, the catalyst by which God brings Brocha and Klala. And then it must so it, intrinsically it must be connected to Torah because reward and or Brocha and Klala are also intrinsically linked to whether the Jewish people are keeping the Torah or whether they're not keeping the Torah. That will depend, that will, uh, that will be the catalyst for Brocha and Klala. And he writes further, he writes, we have a tradition that the Luchos, uh, that the Ten Commandments were written on, were actually 14 commandments, but we call them the Aseris Adibros, the Ten Utterances, but there were actually 14 commandments there, if you kept, check them carefully in Parashish Yisro. Um, he writes, we have a tradition that the Luchos with the Aseris Adibros were made of sapphire. And we also have a tradition that the, the stick of Moshe Rabbeinu was also made of sapphire. 
Um, and he writes, we also have another reference to the, to the Sapir um, when the Jewish people were receiving the Torah in Shemos in chapter 24, um, that uh, when describing that the, the Jewish people, the Torah describes how the Jewish people perceived God at the time when the Torah was given. The Bosak says, Vayiru es Elohei Yisrael. They perceived the God of Israel. Vasachas Raglov, underneath his feet, so to speak, Kamasa Livnas Hasapir, was the, the, like the forming of a brick of uh, a sapir stone. Ke'ucha'etzem Hashemaim Lotohar. And it represented the purity of heaven. So again, you have this idea of something blue, um, something pure, something esoteric that uh, is also connected to Torah. And if it's connected to Torah, it's connected to Brocha. And if it's connected to Torah and Brocha, it's also connected to Klola. So that goes back to the original discussion that this place where Yechezkel is seeing or imagining that he's seeing which is the third level up, which is the the uh, penultimate level, the the world of Bria, the world of creation. He's seeing something blue, something pure, something that represents God's interaction with his Jewish people uh, based on their intera- their own interaction with the Torah. And um, he writes as follows. I'll just finish off what he writes. It's quite a long piece, but uh, it's interesting what he says. Um he, he, he says as, as follows. Um, it's a well-known fact that the souls of Torah scholars are part of a whole bundle of souls be, beneath God's throne. Now, this is something that the Ramchal talks about, that when people die, so they go to a place, Tachas Kanfei Hashchina, underneath the wings of God's presence. So that's called that this is beneath the throne. That's the idea of this, the souls being beneath the throne, being beneath God's wings. Um, and he says, we learn this from this verse. Like, uh, the idea here is that uh, he's seeing something blue. He's seeing something um, that represents the souls of all the people that have passed, that are present there, that all the souls are pure. Um, either they're pure because they had a pure life or they're pure because they have been purified through some sort of uh, post-death experience. Um, and that is the area of the throne. That is the area where the souls rest. That is the place where the souls go when a human being dies. Uh, awaiting um, awaiting the coming of the Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead. And the blue color, he says, is a color similar, symbolizing um, purity, humility, modesty. And these are character traits um, that are equally becoming to both young and old. It's a requirement for both young and old people to, to have pure thoughts, to be pure uh, and to be humble and to be modest. And uh, he, he quotes a posuk from Yeches, from Yeshaya, that God says, I dwell on high in holiness, but with me are all the contrite, all the humble ones, all the, the, the souls of those who were humble. Um, and are lowly in spirit. In other words, uh, people who are modest. 
So what, what, what again, the Rabbeinu Bachai is telling you here is, um, what the other thing that uh, Yechezkel is seeing here, he's seeing the souls of the Tzadikim, the souls of the Tamidi Chachomim. He's seeing the souls of the people, the souls of the people that have passed away, and that's where they are in the, in the Olam Habriya, in the world of creation, because they're awaiting recreation. They're awaiting to be resurrected. Exactly what they do there, so that you'd have to listen to my um, Shirim on Derech Hashem. The Ramchal describes exactly what they do all, there all day. Uh, it's not Netflix and um, it's not the European Championships. Um, you know, it's other stuff. Um, but I, I discuss this in great detail in the um, in the Derech Hashem Shirim. When the Luchas made of Sapphire Stone, I mentioned that, yes. I've already mentioned that. Um, um, so he writes as follows. So since Sapir, this idea of Sapir, which represents um, a foundation, it's, it represents a connection between God and his people, it, represent, it represents the souls of the departed people. Um, so he says that's why Sapir was the appropriate stone to represent the tribe of Yezokha, because Torah, for which Yezokha is famous, provides enlightenment in Torah. And the Enlightenment in Torah is represented by the Sapir. Um, and then he goes on to discuss that the Kisei, uh, the, the word Luchos, by the way, the word Luchos, uh, there's, a, there's a method by, by which we do a conversion of words in Hebrew. It's called At-Bash. So At-Bash is you take a word and you, if there's a letter Aleph, you transpose it to a Taf. If there's a letter Base, you transpose it to a Shin. If there's a letter Gimel, you transpose it to a Resh, etc., etc. It's like a backward Aleph base. So he says, if you take the word Luchot and you spell it with Atbash, it comes to the word Kisei, the, the throne. It's the throne room. The Luchot were from the throne room. This is the throne room, the blue throne room, the blue sapphire throne room that contains the, the connection between God and the world in terms of Brocha and Klola based on Torah. And it also is the place where the souls are, the pure souls. Blue is the color of purity, and this is where the pure souls are. Because given some name Shapiro, Mark May. No, the name Shapiro, um, I don't want to get involved in, in there are three towns in Germany, in, in the Rhineland, um, uh, Christian towns. One was called um, Mines, one was called Worms, and one was called Spires. Uh, there were th- the three major cities of the Rhineland. The Jews settled there in the 7th, 8th, 9th and 10th century, which it was the birth of the Ashkenazi community. And they settled in three major, these three major cities, mines, worms and spires. But the tradition of the Jewish people, specifically the tradition of the Ashkenazi community, um, was not to call the cities they lived in by their Christian names. They would make up what would later become Yiddish. It was, Rashi calls it Old French, but it's really the beginnings of Yiddish. They would make up their own names for the towns they lived in. So the town of Mines, they called Magenza. The town, the town of Worms, they called Vermeisa. And the town of Spires, they called Shapiro. And that's where the word, the name, the Jewish name Shapiro comes from. If you called Shapiro, there's a likelihood is that you can trace your lineage back. It's an Ashkenazi name. You can trace your lineage back, Lo'aleinu, 
to French. So you probably, you could probably, if your name's Shapiro, you could probably get a French passport and for the, for the good it'll do you. And you can learn French again, if that's what's uh, something that you like to do. Good luck to you. Um, but no, nothing to do with Shapiro. Shapiro is uh, a perversion of the name Spires, which is still a, a city in um, southern in uh, the Rhineland, France. I don't know if it's in Germany or uh, or France at the moment. But this word at bash, this la this language, this at bash language. If you convert the word luchot, you'll get the word kisei, and this is the place we're talking about, where the Evan Sapir sits. Uh, we mention it in davening. People don't realize we mention it in davening every morning. The it's when we say mizmo shir chanukah sabayis l'david. Right at the end, we say laman yezamecha kavod v'lo yidom. As it finish off. Um, that's the, the language of David Amelach, and that alludes to that alludes to It's the it's a, it's a, a reference to the Evan Sapir. So we say it every morning in Davenings. God's kavod. That's where God's kisei uh, hakavod is. The the throne of glory, not literally a throne. But the place where the souls are, the place where the Jews have the, the Jewish people's connection uh, to God, so to speak, uh, initiates via their learning of Torah and the souls of those that have uh, passed away are there as well, waiting to be reborn. This is the area that we're talking about. So that is a second opinion. That's the opinion of the uh, Rabbeinu Bachai. I'll just give you one last uh, approach. From a Gemara in Chulin, um, rather than being the cornerstone of the Bria, the cornerstone of the creation, uh, rather than being um, the Evan Sapir, the um, the the place of the souls or the connection between God and the Jewish people's learning of Torah and and the Brochas and the Klolos, etc. Um, the Gemara in Chulin suggests that the Evan Sapir represents the bond between the Jewish people and God. And uh, the Gemara there in Chulin on that uh, paid test, I think it is, paid test on Madalaf. If you remember in the book of Bracious, the story of Avram Avinu, he goes, uh, he has the war with the four kings and the five kings. And then the king of Sodom offers him uh offers him things uh, to help him out, to become an ally. Um, and uh, Avram's response to the king of Sodom is this, in Machot v'aj sroch nal, I won't take a thread or a shoe strap from you. V'emekach mikol ha-shaloch, v'losoma ani hesharti es Avram. I won't take anything from you. I don't want people to say, that um, you, the king of Sodom, made Avram Avinu uh, wealthy. Avram was distancing himself from everything, everything that wasn't anything that wasn't rightfully his. And the Gemara there says, as a result of turning away all this cash, um, his children merited two mitzvahs. The mitzvahs that they uh, merited 
Wittacheles, which the wool, the blue wool that you wear on your tzitzis, and the straps, the, uh, the, um, the, the straps of tefillin. So the Gemara asks the question, listen, we know the, the straps of the tefillin impart benefit. The Torah actually says so, says so. The Torah says regarding the, um, the tefillin, the tefillin shall rosh for oracle ame ha'oretz. The people, all the people of the world will see you wearing tefillin. Kishem Hashem nikro lecho, that the name of God is upon you. And they will be afraid of you. And the Gemara says, uh, the Gemara says the name of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer HaGadol. This verse, this posik is a reference to the tefillin shel rosh. Um, yeah, the tefillin shel rosh has got God, the, the shin of God's name on the front of it. Therefore, tefillin impart a splendor, a grandeur of God and are a fitting reward for what Avram did. Avram turned away cash on the basis he didn't want to be associated with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom was the antithesis of creation. He was the antithesis of chesed, which is the antithesis of God. So for that, for doing that, he was rewarded two mitzvahs. One of them was uh, tefillin, we just explained that uh, gives you, uh, uh, provides the Jewish people with the uniform, the uniform of God. But what's the benefit, the Gemara asks, what's the benefit imparted by Techeles? So the Gemara says it's like this. They said in the name of Rab Meir, what is different about sky blue from all of the colors? It's talking about the color of the sapphire, talking about the color of the Techeles, uh, turquoise, we call it in English. Um, the Gemara says that Rab Meir says, what, Wait, Reb Meir asks a rhetorical question. What's different about the sky, the sky blue of the Techeles from all other colors that it was specified for the Mitzvah of Tzitzes? So he says it's because sky blue, the Techeles, the color of Techeles is similar to the color of the sea. The sea is similar to the color of the sky and the sky is similar to the Evan Sapir. And the Evan Sapir sits in the throne of glory or on the throne of glory. And he quotes the Posuk again. Like under, in the throne room, so to speak, in the, in the world of Bria sits the Sapir. So what we're supposed to do when we look at our um, tzitzes, we're supposed to look at the techeles on our tzitzes and see that we are connected in some way. That's the color of, that's the color of the world of Bria. That's the color of the world of creation. And uh, as Rav Soloveitchik said, we should reflect on that. When we look at our tzitzes and we've got techelas on our tzitzes, you should reflect on the fact that that's your connection. That's like a physical representative of your connection to uh, the Olam Habriya, the world of creation and the throne of God and the souls and the Torah and everything else that's in that uh, in that uh, spiritual realm. So that's another way of looking at it. Um, so, in, in the, the Gomorrah quotes this possible. That's what the Kisei looked like. That's what the throne room looked like. The throne room of God has got this Techeles color, has got this uh, dark blue color. Rabbi Soloveitchik also says that if you look at it, um, it's not exactly turquoise. It's uh, darker than turquoise. It's also to contrast the white of the other tzitzis and to it, to give you an understanding that um, there's a mortality in life. And uh, the white tzitzis represent life. 
And uh, the Tcheles represents the fact that you, one day you're going to end up in there. You're going to end up Lifnei Kisei Kavodachod, Kavodo, in that uh, space, in that area, uh, under God's, uh, so to speak, Tachas Kanfei Hashchina, under the wings of God's presence. That's where the souls go. And the blue of the Tcheles is to remind you of that fact, that uh, things don't last forever. The white strings of the sitzes are references to life. And, uh, but the one string of Tcheles is to tell you that uh, on two, like on two fronts. Number one, that even while you're alive, you're connected to this place, the throne room. And number two, that, um, that uh, eventually we all go there. We all end up there. We all end up in this place, in this throne room. So that is, I mean, there's a lot more to say about the Evans Sapir, but we don't, really don't have time for it. Everyone's welcome to do their own research into the Evans Sapir. Um, who's this? Here, here for Avram. Yeah, he was a good chap, no? Hold on. Who wrote this? This is a long thing. 1096. Who wrote this? Speyer. Harvey. Oh, you've been digging again. Jewish community spares Bishop John, the local... Yeah, 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 okay. Well, almost harming he would have his hands chopped off. Okay. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Harv. Thanks for the history. Okay. All right. So that really concludes, as I said, uh, the first part, of, the second part of the verse we dealt with last week in great detail. Um, the idea of who's sitting on the throne there. So we had a long discussion about who that was. Uh, the majority opinion, it's the ability of man to rise above the level of angels. And I, I, I explained it in great detail last week. But now we come to verse 27. And this is where, you know, this is where all bets are off. I'll read the posset to you. I'll tell you what Rashi says. And then I'll tell you what I can tell you. That's, uh, that's basically it. Uh, I can't tell you more than I can tell you. So the posset says like this. Um, then... Now he's seen the throne, he's seen the sapir, and he's looking forever upwards. Vo'ere, this is verse 27. Vo'ere ke'en chashmal. Kamare eish beislo saviv bimare mosnov ulamalo. Full stop. That's the first part of the verse. Uh, I'll translate it um, for, for the good it'll do. And I saw the, the color of the chashmal as the appearance of fire contained and hidden within it. From the period, from the appearance of his uh, loins and upwards, that's the first part of the verse. That's talking about the torso, so to speak, of some type of being. Upwards, it was completely hidden by fire. Umare mos novulamato, but from the appearance of this being's loins and below, like below the waist, roisi kamare eish venogalosaviv. Yes, that was also covered in fire. But there was a brightness and a halo around it that gave me some insight. Like there was some aura to it that I could understand. So the Posuk's describing two parts of a being. And um, uh, the first part of the verse is describing the upward part. the the From the, so to speak, if we imagine a human being, from the point of the waist upwards which Yechezkel describes as completely hidden by fire. Couldn't, couldn't make anything out. The being from the waist downwards was also covered in fire, but not the, not the fire of the Chashmal, but a different type of fire, 
but uh, it wasn't as intense. For no Golosovi, and there was a, an aura, a brightness, a halo around it, which implies that uh, he could draw some conclusions from that area of what he was seeing. Now Rashi, uh, if anyone's got Rashi in front of them, Rashi tells you straight away, You don't have the right to try and interpret this possible. Leave it alone. Don't go there. Go on to the next verse and everyone will be happy. Um, so, thankfully, we don't have the capacity that Rashi is referring to because he's talking to people that... Uh, have got the ability to delve into this posse using Kabbalistic methodology. We don't have that ability. So what we can do is discuss issues raised in the verse, in the posuk, issues that are discussed by others. Um, and uh, some stuff can be uh, brought out in public, which I'll share with you. Others can't be, which I won't. Uh, you won't know which is which because the bits I leave out, I won't explain to you. So you won't know which of the bits I've missed out. You'll only know the bits I've explained to you. So the, just a, a quick refresher course on this idea of Chashmal, um, the Baal Shem Tov. Yeah, the whole of last week. We we dealt with the second part of the verse first last week. Okay, no problem. Okay, so I'll just go through what uh, the majority opinion is. I'll use the words of the Baal Shem Tov. I don't normally quote Hasidim, Hasidic sources, but uh, this is, after all, the Baal Shem Tov. What is the Chashmal? The idea of the Chashmal is a leaven of heaven, almost. Um, if not at the peak of the heavenly spheres, which is categorized by Chash, Mi'inyan Shtika, Umal, Mi'inyan Dibur. It is a paradox. The word Chashmal in, in itself is a paradox. Chash implies Shtika, silence. Umal, Mi'inyan Dibur implies language, speaking, communication. So the word chashmal itself is a paradox. Silence and communication, uh, which is something that uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, tefillah we can understand, as the Baal Shem Tov points out. Uh, it's the key to successful tefillah, to know um, when to be silent and when to speak up um, is very important in davening. So that you should know when to cry out to God during your Shemona Esrei and when to keep silent and just be reflective. But in terms of this angel Chashmal, it creates a paradox. Because the angel itself is described as both silent and interactive in Dibur, speaking. So it's, it's a, a paradoxical idea and something that we can't contemplate, that something on the one hand at the same simultaneously is silent, and on the other hand, simultaneously is talking. So that was the difficulty we had very early on in the chapter, and we didn't take it any further. Um, and again, we've got Rashi's warning here that uh, please don't go there, but uh, we'll go there, and we'll go as far as we can possibly go. 
as I pointed out, the verse is split into two parts. The first part of the verse seems to be describing something about a being above the being's waist that was completely uh, shielded by the chashmal, the fire of the chashmal. Um, the lower part of this being's body from the waist down is also covered in fire, but can be partially rationalized, can be partially uh, seen and understood. Um, so let's just go back to Rashi. Uh, the, possibly the reason why Rashi was very strict in his warning about trying to understand what's going on in this posuk um, and exactly what Yechezkel is trying to describe here is based on the Gemara and Chagiga. Again, the Gemara and Chagiga is the primary source for the Merkava. This is the Gemara in Chagiga on Dafyud Gimel Amadalaf. The Gemara describes an incident involving a young boy who was reading the first chapter of Yechezkel. And he, he had an inspiration and he suddenly understood what chashmal, the chashmal, or what chashmal meant. And a fire came out of the chashmal and devoured him, killed him. Consequently, the Gemara says, the rabbis wanted to, to suppress the sec, this section of the first chapter of Yechezkel due to the danger it posed. So, that could be Rashi's, the basis for Rashi's. Now, we're not at the level where we can, so to speak, break through the paradox of the Chashmal, exactly what it is. But we'll get, what we're going to see here are a, a number of paradoxes. I mean, last week we had, so to speak, uh, the ultimate paradox, right? The paradox of the uh, Poraduma. But uh, that's uh, the Poraduma is a paradox... Um, so to speak, uh, for the intellectual, the human intellectual mind. The the idea of Chashmal here and what's going on in this Posuk is a paradox even beyond that. It's, uh, it's a spiritual paradox. The, the Poradumo is a physical par- paradox. How, do, how, how can it be that something that can prov- provide purity to one person can simultaneously provide impurity to another? So... That's the way we tell our children, or that's the way we describe the paradox of the Poraduma to our children. Obviously, that's not the real paradox, um, but it, there is a paradox in the Poraduma, and um, it's not the only paradox. Uh, people don't realize that uh, there are paradoxes all over. Um, uh, in Gomorrah's, in, in Judaism, is not short of paradoxes, and we shouldn't be put off by paradoxes in Judaism because... Um, they, uh, as I pointed out before, there are things we don't understand that appear to be a paradox. It doesn't mean that, a, that there isn't an answer to the problem. It means that we've not just, we just haven't been given the tools to, to uh, unravel the paradox. Um, the, the, I'll just give you an example of a paradox in Aloha, a very, very simple paradox in Aloha uh, regarding Rosh Chodesh, right? So you have Rosh Chodesh and we know that the system by which Rosh Chodesh was declared was by two witnesses coming to the base of Migdosh and saying, you know, we saw the new moon last night. So at that point, the, the, um, Ben, Ben Friedman pays special attention to this example I'm giving. This is right up your street, Gomorrah and Maccas. So you have, um, you have two witnesses that came, come to the base of Migdosh and said, we saw the new moon last night. So at that point, the base, the base din will, de- or the base of Migdosh, the Kohanim will declare the new month, the Rosh Chodesh. Now, there's such a thing in Judaism called Adim Zomamim, that you have Adim that come and give testimony, and it's false testimony. 
It might have been that uh, the new moon did come last night, but these two chaps couldn't possibly have seen it because they were somewhere else. And the rule by Adim Zomamim, by these conspiratorial witnesses, is their evidence is thrown out. Their evidence is thrown out. So imagine this scenario. Two witnesses come forward to the base dit, or to the base of Migdosh, and say, we saw the new moon last night. So the base din are about to declare Rosh Chodesh, when two other witnesses come in and say, listen, we don't know whether the new moon came appeared last night, but these two characters that have just given evidence, they couldn't possibly have seen it, because they were in the underground casino with us playing blackjack all night. So they couldn't possibly have seen it. So at, at, at that point, Al-Piha Torah, according to the rules of the Torah, the evidence of the first two witnesses is thrown out and it's not Rosh Chodesh. The rabbis do not declare Rosh Chodesh. At which point the Dayanim say to the second two witnesses, you two seem a bit young to be giving evidence. How old are you? And the two guys say, we are 13 on Rosh Chodesh. Says the Ritva, reflect on what these two guys have just said. Two guys have come forward and said, giving evidence that it's Rosh Chodesh. On their evidence, Rosh Chodesh is declared. At which point, the two secondary witnesses are now 13 years old. So they are kosher to give aidus. They're kosher to give evidence. So they can come forward and give evidence that the witnesses, the previous witnesses, were lying. At which point, once they do that, the evidence that the first two witnesses gave given is thrown out, and it's now no longer Rosh Chodesh. At which point, these two witnesses, the second two witnesses, are now no longer 13. They're now 12 again. At which point, their evidence is not accepted. Since their evidence is not accepted, the first witness's evidence is accepted, and it becomes Rosh Chodesh again. But then, if it becomes Rosh Chodesh again... The second two witnesses become Bar Mitzvah and their evidence is accepted again. So it's not Rosh Chodesh. As soon as it's not Rosh Chodesh, it is Rosh Chodesh. And as, as soon as it is Rosh Chodesh, it becomes not Rosh Chodesh. So the Ritvah says, here you have a clear paradox in Aloha, what do you do? So the idea of paradoxes in Jewish, uh, in Judaism are, are, are not few and far between. There are thousands in Tanakh. Or there are thousands in the Gemara. So the idea of the Chashmal being a paradox is just a minor inconvenience. What we're going to see now is even bigger paradoxes coming out of this verse. So I'm going to read to you the uh, Malbim. And the Malbim says like this. The Chashmal lives in, or so just lives, I don't think lives is the right word. He occupies. This angel, Chashmal, occupies the Machana Shechina, the area where God is. Shehib Besolcha Eish, and that's in the middle of the fire. Rotzorot Lomasha, Shreifa Azos, Lo Yeel Hamareches. This fire, this Chashmal, the idea of it, the conception of it, is outside of any natural system imaginable. Rak Al Yedei Hashem Levado. The only being that understands what the Chashmal is, is God himself. And uh, as we know, God is not a stool pigeon. God doesn't uh, give, give you the information. <speaking> in <Hebrew> 
the level of Chashmal contains not only fire of destruction, but the glow and halo of mercy. So that what the Chashmal is, is a double paradox. The double paradox is that the Chashmal is speech. The Chashmal is silence. That is one aspect of the Chashmal that is a paradox. The other, um, the other essence of the Chashmal is the Chashmal is destruction and the Chashmal is redemption. Again, two absolute opposites. That is the second paradox of the Chashmal. And that's why the Gemara and Rashi and all the other, well, the majority of the commentators are very wary about trying to make any comments or make any, give you any adjectives to describe. Um, these are paradoxes that we are incapable of unraveling. The verse itself actually alludes to this paradox in the sense that it seems to be describing in a bit more detail the appearance of the man or the being on the throne from the previous verse. In verse 26, as um, Joan pointed out, we discuss the idea of the man sitting on the, thro- on the throne. And the, the, the words of verse 26 ring in our ears. Va'al-demus on the appearance of the throne, demus kamari odom olav milmala was the appearance of the man sitting on it from above. So, if you look, if you, the Rabbeinu Bachai, again, explains the Posuk. Uh, well, he doesn't explain it himself. He brings the commentary of Rabbeinu Sajigon, one of the great Gaonim, that the words in the Torah, when, when, when God is talking to Moshe Rabbeinu, he describes himself as lo yuch ki lo sucha liros ponai. You, you, Moshe Rabbeinu, are incapable of seeing ponai, my face, literally meaning the beginning, my beginning, the beginning of my light. Whereas you will be able to see vera es achoroi. You'll be able to see the end of the light. In other words, God, so to speak, applies a cover to Moshe Rabbeinu's eyes. Well, the beginning of God's light, God's essence and God's will passed before him. Whereas God removed this cover when the end of the light, God's light passed before him. Now, the difference between the difference between the light going before and the light, you can't see the light that goes before, but you can see you can see what comes afterwards is simply this, that the, the, consequ- you, the, the essence of God, the determination of God, the will of God is imperceptible. The consequence, that is lo suchal, ki lo suchal liros ponoi. You can't see the primary light. You can't see my will. You can't understand. It's a paradox to you. You can't make any sense of what my will is, even if I presented it to you. What you can see, or what you can appreciate, what you can perceive, is vora'isi es achoroi. You can see my back. You can see the end. Now that means you can see the consequences, the effect of God's essence, the effect of God's will, the effect of God's light on creation. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu could see, and that's what we can see. We can't see the primary cause. We can't see the light that goes forth, the commandment that goes forth, 
the chashmal that goes forth, how the Evan Sapir interacts with our world. We can't see that. We can't see kilosuchal liros ponoi. We can't see the initiation, how God initiates anything. All we can see is vroises achoroi. We can see the consequences, the effect of God's will, of God's light on creation. Um, and this is what he is describing in this verse. If you look at the verse very carefully, again, verse 27. Is everyone with the uh, program here? I'm going to read this verse in the way that you're supposed to read it, in the context of what Rabbeinu Bachai or Rabbeinu Sajigon has just explained. So verse 27. Full stop. I saw the Chashmal, like the appearance of fire contained and hidden within it, from the appearance of his loins and above. That is one part of, so to speak, God's essence. From above, the starting point, that was completely shielded by the Chashmal, by paradoxes. Umamrei Mosnovulamata, but the appearance of so to speak, God's essence from below, Ro'isi Sovit. I saw it was the appearance of fire again, but there was a brightness, there was a halo around it. It became visible to me. So that you have the first part of the verse refers to the beginning of God's light. Mimara Mosnovulamala, his loins upwards, the front, the face of God, the essence, the will of the primary being which is completely contained in the Chashmal. Kamare Eish, base loss of it. So that Yecheskel, like Moshe before him, could not even have any perception of what it was. It's completely covered by the Chashmal. The Chashmal being the paradoxes, that a human being isn't capable of dealing with these paradoxes. That the initiation of God's will is completely hidden from us. It's hidden in paradoxes, and as human beings, transitory human beings with limited intellect, we're incapable of doing, uh, getting a, 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 an inkling of what the will is, what the light is. But the last part of the verse refers to the tail end of the light. Umare mosnov ulamata. The effect it has down here. The appearance of God, so to speak, down here. In the lower reaches, Ro'isi Kamareesh, yes, it appears like fire, but Venogolo Saviv, the back of God. The analogy to this verse would be the words from the Torah, Vora'isa es Achoroi. You can see the consequences. Ulamata, you can see what the consequences down here in the physical world. So that Yechezkel had an insight into the aspects of God, the consequences, the effects of God's essence, God's will, God's light, similar to Moshe. Um, seeing God, so to speak, from behind, as Yechezkel describes it, the nogalo soviv, like the consequences of God's action on creation, um, can be seen. You can see it as a halo, you can see it as an aura, you can see it as an effect in the physical world. But Lamala? No. Lamala. The upper reaches, the initiation, 
what's above, what's God, God's face, so to speak, God's initial light, God's initial will, God's initiation of action, that's impossible. That's clouded in Chashmal. That's clouded in the paradox or the, the multitude of paradoxes that are represented by the Chashmal. So I'll just finish, if it, just give me two more minutes, I'll finish off. He finishes off here, Reb Sajigon, he says, he quotes a posuk from Chabakuk. Uh, the posuk in Chabakuk says, Lafon of Yelech Dever Reshef Laraglov. Pestilence marches before him and plague comes at his heels. Now, in that verse, it says Lafonov, Lafonov, that word Lafonov, before him. That refers to what comes at the beginning, the primary cause of God's action. That is completely unknowable. And you read the verse like this, Lafonov Yelech Dever, instead of reading the word Dever as pestilence and illness and sickness, read the word Davar, Lafonov Yelech Davar, upstairs. At the initiation point of God's will, God's light, God's action, God's essence, there is Lafonov. At that point, there's only God, God's word, God's will, God's essence. Impossible to rationalize. And the end of the Posik, it says, Vyetse Reshef Laraglov. The word Raglov at its heels. When we feel it in the physical world, we feel the effect of God's will. That is, so to speak, the same analogy that Moshe got. That uh, impossible, only you can only see the effect of God's will. You can't see it being initiated. Again, Lafonov Yelech Dever, Vyetse Reshef Laraglov. Lafonov, you can't see anything. Raglov, you can see, you can understand, you can get a handle on, so to speak. And this is what, this is what, Yechezkel uh, is witnessing here as well. He's witnessing something that partially paradoxical in terms of the initiation of God's will and partially ulamata roisies kamariesh venogolos We have uh, an indication when God's will actually interacts with our physical world what it all means. What it's a brocha, is it a klola, is it parnosa, is it... Uh, Taking away of Paranasa, is it life, is it death, is it illness, is it health, is it sickness, whatever it is. We can see the effect, but we can't see the initiation. So just to finish off, when the Torah speaks about Vorohesias Achoroi, that when God said to Moshe Rabbeinu, you'll be able to see Achoroi, you'll be able to see my back, it refers to the aspect of God's light, will or essence that man can perceive and or endure or rationalize, where, whereas whatever is described as kilo suchaliros ponoi, you won't be able to see my front, my face, whatever is in front of him can't be perceived, is referring to what man cannot perceive, because it's crouched in chashmal, it's crouched in paradox, it's crouched in... Um, um, Things that a human being can't rationalize. So Yechezkel is having exactly that experience. He, he has as a prophet the ability to see only from the loins downwards. The halo effect of God's will. Mimare Moslov Ulamata. He can only see the effect of God's will into the physical world. Roisi Kamare Eish Venogolosovit. When it comes into our world, when it comes Lamata, then I can understand. 
he, that's the point he's making. But in relation to the primary cause of God's will, God's essence, God's light, that is completely shrouded, because the chashmal is the objective paradox. It is the objective group of paradoxes that man can't even begin to contemplate. So um, that's as much as I can say on this verse. Uh, if there's any questions, now's the time. Um, we have one verse yet to do, verse 28. So that's the verse in the chapter. It's uh, extremely powerful. Um, there's a lot to say. And uh, I hope we'll be able to do it in one session next week. If not, we'll have to go into the week after. But if anybody's got any questions, uh, now's the time. I hope everyone understood that. Is Is anybody want me to repeat anything? Does everyone get the message? I hope so. Any question? Correct, correct, the behind, always the behind. The only, the only time when you get to see the front is when you're um, mayor of Esrim Shona, when you're parked up there in by the Evan Sapir, when you're parked up in the Evan Sapir so you can look up and, and look, look God face to face. Now, some of you might think that that's a great idea, but not yet, right? Um, one day... Um, but, the, you know, there's questions to be answered at that point in time. There'll always be questions. Um, but I think, uh, yeah, Jeff, you, you make a very, very important point there. Uh, um, anybody got anything to say? Comments? Um... That's this world we're talking about now. That's this world. No, no. Yeah, yeah, Atsilos, yes. It's just a mirage, this. This is just a mirage. It's just a euphemism. Just a euphemism. He is now, he is now, and um, as we'll see in the last verse, he gets the ultimate, um, he gets the ultimate vision, which it, I'll just read the verse for you. It says, the first words of the verse are the most important words here. Kamare Hakeshes like the appearance of the rainbow. So, um, which he's basically, did, that is as close as we can get to the idea of God. Um, as I'll explain next week, please God. Not that I want, you know, i leave you off, off at a, um, a point in time. How can the rainbow be the essence of God? I'll explain that to you next week. Um, if you want to visualize, so to speak, when you're in your davening, so again, as children, we do, we, we imagine, you know, a big father Christmas figure without the red, uh, red hat and, uh, you know, 
the uh, the bells that we we always imagine you know an old man sitting at a throne and we're praying to God a better a better imagery would be a rainbow that would be a better imagery as we'll discuss next week and and hopefully that will bring to an end the first chapter of Yechezkel and uh, once we've finished the first chapter of Yechezkel we can move on and treat it like um, hope well not any other book of Tanakh, but like a, um, um, we'll, 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 it'll be, it'll settle down. It won't be so. Um, I don't know what the right word is. So um, hectic, I think the South Africans say. It won't be so hectic because this chapter is pretty hectic. Um, in any event, that is verse twenty-seven. As much as I can say, and next week hopefully we'll get to finish the chapter. And get to the point where we can start uh, discussing uh, Yechezkel's first uh, prophecy, word prophecy. Um, if there's nobody else wants to speak, I'll call a halt and uh, we'll, re- we'll return next week. Rob, have you had a head on? Have you had your head on there, Rob? Have you had a haircut? Gee whiz, look at that. Gee whiz. That must have cost 100 shekels, man. Gee whiz. Okay, good night, everybody. Have a great week, and I'll see you next Monday, please, God. Call to everybody. Call to. Call, call to. Call to. Call to. Bye bye.